Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 21 as we continue our study. Last week we looked at Jesus' predictions and warnings. This week we're going to look at retribution and reward. Speaking of ruler of all, it's only September here of 2023. It's more than a whole year before the next presidential election, yet it is already in full swing. There is no escaping all the shenanigans that follow the political season. It's been rightly called the silly season, and it is. Everyone is touting their candidate, predicting all the great things that this politician, this president, this mayor, whatever it may be, all the great things that they can achieve for us, making our lives better, putting things right, while warning of the disaster and the devastation that will follow if we, if the other candidate So here we are. We're in this tension. Who do we vote for? Everyone is giving you all the promises under the sun. But yet what you and I understand that there is only one ruler of all. There is only one who can rule in righteousness, bring back justice and make all things new. That's Jesus Christ, in case you might be wondering. He is the king that we should yearn for. Only God can restore all that is broken in this sin-wrecked world. Amen? We need to understand that. There is one ruler of all. Last week, while discussing the beauty of the temple, Jesus makes a shocking statement indicating that the temple will one day be destroyed. And, and on Slack, I think I have given that to you. If you haven't received it, I gave you a 3D modeling of Herod's temple and getting it under its, under its gist. If you didn't get that, uh, check that out. I just put it under the message. If you're not on Slack, let us know. We'd love to get it to you and I can send it to you another way as well. But looking at that, it's just a shocking statement. That's something that had been under, uh, uh, under work for over 60, 80 years. Something so beautiful and magnificent. Jesus says, this will one day be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on top of another. It is Tuesday. Two days before his betrayal by Judas and his arrest. They are sitting by the temple. The disciples respond by his shocking statement by asking, well, when will this happen? And what are the signs that we know that it's about to happen as they look at this beautiful temple? Jesus replied by predicting four things that we've been looking at this week and or last week and then this week. The destruction of the temple, the continuing wars and conflicts and natural disasters and persecutions. That's just part of this world. The destruction of Jerusalem itself, and then the return of the king in great power and glory. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We learned that we can be assured of Jesus' warnings and predictions last week of these things because Jesus can predict because he is God. And as God, he has decreed all that will take place. There are no accidents, no coincidences. Everything takes place. Not a sparrow falls to the ground unless God says fall. The sun only rises because he says rise. And he says set and it sets. 
The world revolves because he tells it to continually do so. But not only has he decreed all that takes place, but all that he has taken place or he has decreed to take place is to glorify him and is for our good. Speaking of the elect, those chosen by God. Now, Jesus warned that there are going to be two things that are going to be constant in this world. World suffering and church suffering. Now, the first constant of world suffering was false messiahs of man-made disasters, war and conflict. We talked about that last, uh, last week of how wars and conflicts are within us every day. There's some type of conflict going on. Not only when we think of wars, but just this week I saw there's two different instances where people were carjacking cars. I, I mean, I guess, I guess jacking cars uh, and taking those cars and running over bicyclists. This actually also happened. This does not include the one that just happened in Huntington Beach last week where a young teenager ran over three people. So we're not just talking about wars, Ukraine, so on. We're just talking the conflict that is happening just in our society, conflict that's happening in our schools, in our political culture wars, and just the conflict that's happening in our families, in our relationships. We should not be surprised. But also is natural disasters, earthquakes, and famines. We were talking about this in adult Sunday school just a little bit earlier. We just read, that was it? I think 11,000 or 13,000 Libyans died in the flooding that just took place, I think, just recently. And before that, there were 1,000 who died in Morocco. And that's not even to talk about Hawaii, what happened in Maui, where we still do not know how many children perished in that fire. They have not yet shared that number with us. It's just silence. These are things that are constant. You will have a politician, you will have cultural leaders, influencers will tell you all these things that they can make right. But to be honest, they barely make a dent. Should we try? Should we try to resolve conflict? Yes, in all forms or fashion. Should we do things like creation care and all other types of things to help us to prepare for these things? Yes, but... This is going to be a constant thing in life. But not only world suffering, but also church suffering. Even God's children, his, his church, his, his bride is going to suffer in this world. We're not immune to it at all. Things such as persecution, apostasy, where people are leaving the faith. And we're seeing it. They've given it a new word. If you ever see the word deconstruction when it's talking about a Christian or church, you have lots of pastors and other preachers that are deconstructing their faith, meaning they're walking away from it and no longer believe the things they once believed. Deception, telling us things that are wrong and a hardness of hearts. We need to realize this. There's a hardness of the heart, even in God's people. But despite those conflicts and constant conflicts, Jesus has commanded his disciples to not be fearful, not to be anxious or doubtful because of the endurance. By that endurance, enduring those things, they shall gain their lives. That even in this constant conflict and suffering, it says that as we endure it, this is holding up for us a great treasure in heaven. Of course, this promise is not only for the disciples that we're reading about today, for those the original readers of Luke's gospel, but also for you and I today. Now, in today's passage, Jesus is going to answer the second part or the second question. Remember last week he said, what 
or when will this happen? Today, Jesus is going to answer what is going to be the sign that indicates that these things are about to happen. So now he's going to give us more of a time frame. So in Luke chapter 21, it's here in the monitor. But again, you have your Bibles, your tablets, your phones, whatever you may use, but use something. We read this in Luke 21, 20. Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Father, these are great warnings that we are to take even today. Now, of course, what we're going to talk about this morning is something that happened 2,000, almost a little almost 2,000 years ago. But Father, it points to something greater that is to come. And it's something to give us a warning, a prediction. But also, as we're going to see, there's a hope that's found here in this passage. So open our minds and hearts, give us attentive ears, help us to listen, keep distractions away. Lord, that we may hear your word and be encouraged, be strengthened. But Father, there may be some that need to be warned, that need to be rebuked and challenged. In any case, we leave up the spirit to do those works. In your name we pray. Amen. So look again, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So he's, he's now answering that second question. What is the sign that it is near? He informs them that that sign is the destruction of the temple, includes when the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by a great army. Surely this is not what the disciples expected to hear. This goes, Jesus' answer now, goes from bad to worse. Not only did he say that the temple was going to be destroyed, but not only is the temple going to be destroyed, but Jerusalem itself is going to be destroyed. What is Jesus talking about? All we were telling them is look at how beautiful this temple is. That's all that they were talking about. Jesus takes them in a direction that they had not expected. He then follows up that horrifying news about Jerusalem being surrounded with a warning in verse 21. Look at that in your Bibles or your tablets, whatever you may have. He says, then let those who are in Judea, <clears throat> that's the area of Jerusalem, flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And then thirdly, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. What we're seeing here is typically what is it that people do when there's danger? Especially in a day in which Jerusalem had great city walls to protect itself. So in those days, if you were attacked or if there was a, even a, a, a something going on, a conflict of some nature, what people would do is they would run inside the city gates. We see this in movies and things of that nature. Close the gates, close the gates. And they, you know, oh, no, what's the furry? Bar the gates, what is it? Whatever it may be, it might be. And so then you're in safety behind those great walls. And Jerusalem had some magnificent walls as other nations as well. But Jesus is saying, do not go to the city for protection. What we're going to see is that those who are inside the city, who seek the city, like Lot, who sought, looked at Sodom and saw that it was desirable, he found destruction. He lost his family in those city gates. He warns them about running to the city for protection, but to flee from it. In verse 23, he goes on to state that this event will be so dreadful. He says that, alas, for women who are pregnant 
and for those who are nursing infants in those days. He says it's going to be a terrible time for those. We talk about that the weather, you know, it's, it's roughest on children and dogs, right? But in this case, he's saying what's happening here is going to be so terrible that you must pray that there are no pregnant women or those that are infinite, no babies in this city. It is not going to be good. He goes on, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, speaking about the Hebrews, the Jewish people. In verse 24, he says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. What Jesus is warning and predicting here is not a nice picture. He is saying very soon, destruction is coming to the city. And any who come to the city will either be killed or be taken prisoner. Now this warning is severe in its detail. No one will escape its devastation and destruction. In his prediction, Jesus gives the purpose for Jerusalem's destruction. Look back at verse 22. We skipped it, but I want to go back to verse 22 and the end of verse 24. For he says that these days, the days of Jerusalem being surrounded, are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And then the end of verse 24. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words, Jerusalem is going to be left desolate. And instead of the Hebrew children, the Jewish people, enjoying the city of God, Mount Zion, that city on the hill, it's going to be the Gentiles who will rule over it. Dr. Thomas Schreiner writes that the demolition of Jerusalem in the temple is not some political accident. It is God carrying out his purpose and his will. What Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and, and to us today is that this here, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, is actually Yahweh's, God's judgment against Israel. Why? Because Israel has rejected Jesus Christ. They had rejected their Messiah, the anointed one of God, the King of kings, the very Son of God. When Jesus remarks that this event is to fulfill all that is written, he is referencing many Old Testament prophets who prophesied warning Israel to repent and turn back to Yahweh or they will be destroyed. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. So what you and I need to understand here is Jesus is warning and predicting a great and terrible time of tribulation for Jerusalem. Not only will they be surrounded by an enemy, but those walls that they feel for protection, that they trust for protection, will be broken down. Their temple where they worship, where God is to meet with them, their, their very identity will be destroyed, as well as their wives, their children, their babies, the unborn even. But look at here, as you got 1 Kings chapter 9, I want you to take your moment and look here at the monitor. As we look at some Old Testament, other scriptures. Do I have that there, Ben? Thank you. Look at Deuteronomy. Back, when God, back before they even got into the, the promised land, God said, vengeance is mine and recompense. 
For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. If Israel, if you reject me, if you slip in fulfilling what I've commanded you to do, vengeance waits you. Look at Micah. He says, therefore, because of you rulers of Israel, Zion, this is another word for Jerusalem, shall be plowed as a field. Think of that imagery. I don't know if you've ever been a farmer or been at a farm or did a garden where you're plowing a field. You're taking everything out and you're digging it up. He says, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of a house, a wooden house or wooden height. In 1 Kings, going back in 1 Kings chapter 9, now this was against Israel. And then the last, Micah was against the rulers, the very ones that Jesus has been uh, uh, competing against or, or who he's been arguing with, or they've been arguing with him, I should say. Look at 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 6. God warned Solomon after building his temple, which was beautiful and more glorious than the one of Herod's. And as we know, that temple itself was destroyed. In verse 6 of chapter 9, he says, But if you turn aside, he's talking to King Solomon and to Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but you go and you serve other gods and you worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. This is what was written. Jesus says, it has been written. This is being fulfilled. He says, and uh, the land that I've given, the house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the people. That's speaking of what happened to them. Why does that look so bad? Kind of like Don and I were driving. Uh, we got to go to the Angel game yesterday. I was driving by. There was the old Catella Grill. I don't know if you remember that place. But it looks like, I don't know if there was a fire or whatever, but half of it's destroyed. And, and as you're driving, what happened to that? That's what he's saying here. He says, in this house, speaking of the temple, will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has God done thus to his land and to his house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, God has brought all of this disaster on them. As you and I know, 586 BC, that came to fruition as well. That's what Jesus says. Listen, I am warning you of something that happened 500 years before. You're now doing, repeating the same mistakes. And of course, as we read Luke's gospel, you and I have been reading that Israel has once again rejected God's command and refuse to accept Jesus as Christ as Lord. The rulers, once again, are refusing to lead the people in righteousness. And if that's not enough, if you and I go back to Luke chapter 21, can you go back there very quickly? Look with me in verse 25. Not only will it be destroyed, not only will they be held captive or killed, that's your choice. Look at verse 25 of Luke 21. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. So he's continually telling them there's not only going to be an army surrounding, but also look at the cosmic disturbances. And he says, on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity. That's kind of like doubt. It's like, what in the world is going on? Because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. 
people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Take your Bibles. I think you were in Isaiah or First Kings. Now go over to Isaiah chapter 13. Jesus warns and predicts of supernatural cosmic upheaval that will cause distress, perplexity, which is fear, which is doubt, which is wonderment, fear and foreboding. Jesus uses some Old Testament descriptive language here that coincides with God's judgment when we read that there'll be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, so on and so forth. Look at Isaiah 13. Look at verse 9. In Isaiah we read, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellation will not give light. The sun will dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. We're talking about retribution here. Vengeance, the wrath of God finally poured out and all those that have rejected his rule and his reign. You see, cosmic disturbances designate the judgment of God. It's going to be earth-shattering. Things are going to be happening that the scientists are going to say, we do not understand what is happening here. There is no, there is no law of nature that describes or can tell us why this is happening. Maybe they'll cry out aliens as we tend to do or some other type of climate change or global warming or whatever it may be you're not going to understand but you and I as disciples of Christ need to understand that this is God's judgment the New Testament uses the same language about God's judgment in 2 Peter chapter 3 where the apostle declares the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. John MacArthur kind of flippantly says this to those that are warning about climate change and about all the things that people always say, whether it's climate globally, global, we remember these, right? Population explosion, uh, global warming. He says, if you think that we're having problems with the world today, wait until you see what God's plans for the world is. God's retribution to a world that is hostile and rejects Christ is going to be a high price. Yet even though in these dire warnings and predictions, there is a sign and hope of hope and promise in verse 27. And this is, if you have a highlighter, if you have a, a pen, I'd love for you to, to underline this in your Bible or in your tablet. In verse 27, it says, and then... And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Not only is retribution coming, brothers and sisters, for those who reject Christ, but also reward to those that are faithful to God. 
Jesus promises that he will return to reward those who have gladly accepted his reign and rule as king. So there are dire warnings and predictions, but yet there is also hope for those who have accepted Christ. Jesus points out that they will see his coming, meaning that his return will be, as you see here on the monitor, that when Jesus does return, his return is going to be a worldwide event. You know, I was young enough uh, to, to, to remember the first worldwide event that took place where everyone in the world can watch something at the same time. Does anyone remember what it was? Anyone old enough to remember what that was? No. Elvis Presley and his concert. It was worldwide, the first time ever satellites used, yes, the moonlighting there, but even then that wasn't a worldwide event at the same time where everyone in the world was able to see it. I could be wrong, but that's what they were told, I was told. So you have the moonlighting, you have Elvis. So either one, you get it. But it's going to be a worldwide event. It doesn't care if it, if it happens over Jerusalem in some form or fashion, you and I are going to see it, but not on a TV screen. This is going to be in, this is going to be like in 4D, 5D, whatever, right outside your bread, bedroom window. It's also going to be visible and noticeable. You're not sleeping through this one. They're not going to be denied. He will be seen. It's going to be bodily and personable. When we say Jesus is coming in, we're talking about Jesus Christ himself. He is coming. We will see him in the flesh but also he's going to come in power to finalize his kingdom. He's not going to be coming meek on a donkey or born in some type of stable. He is going to be coming in power. Jesus' prediction mirrors that vision of Daniel that he had hundreds of years prior when he writes, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, that all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The apostle John was probably reminded of Jesus' words here in Luke. When he was also given, in, uh, given a vision 30 years later or 60 years later in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, when he described what he witnessed, when he says, behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, who killed him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Let it be. I agree. Earlier in our scripture reading, <coughs> excuse me, Landon read the angel's words of encouragement to the disciples that Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. As he ascended into heaven in the clouds, he will descend in the heavens of clouds. One thing that you and I can be assured of is no matter how difficult and devastating things are or becoming in this world, Christ is returning to reward his children. Thank you. That's our hope. That's our promise. Now, one thing that you and I might question is to have these things happened. Have these dire warnings and predictions and these promises, have they happened? 
You and I have the benefit of being able to look back and see that Jesus' warnings and predictions were absolutely 100% correct. 33 years after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, the Jews revolted against the Roman Empire that ruled the world at that time. After six years of fighting, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Roman armies and besieged, just as Jesus says here in Luke 21. And according to Daryl Young of the focus of, of, on Jerusalem prophecy, he says the Jewish zealots writing of that time, we have a history of what happened during that time. He says the Jewish zealots reacting in opposition to Caligula's campaign began a revolt. The inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem died in, a great, uh, died in great numbers via starvation because they destroyed the food stocks of the zealots and the local Jewish population. There was no food for them to go and forage and to gather. There was no hunting. The Romans had surrounded and to take care of everything and then destroyed the foods that they had. Many died of starvation. They encircled the city in A.D. 70, just was that 37 I can't do the math 37 years after Christ's resurrection or resurrection Titus posted his 10th legion on the Mount of Olives directly east of and overlooking the temple on the 10th of August AD 70 so not just you know thinking of just back August Titus took the city and he put it to a torch he put he started to put it on fire burning the temple leaving not one stone upon another Jerusalem was totally destroyed as Jesus predicted 37 years ago. Not one stone was left. And remember, those stones were 40 by 40 by 12. Not one stone was left. When the temple was set on fire, the Roman soldiers tore apart the stone to get the gold that had been put inside of it. Hence why that was torn apart. Showing this here on the, the um, screen here, the monitor is that the savagery, savagery and slaughter, disease and famine in Jerusalem were monstrous. Mothers killed their children for food. Over 97,000 were taken prisoner, while over a million died under the siege. This ended the daily sacrifice, and the temple worship ended. All the Jews were excluded from Jerusalem for the next 200 years. And it was finished in AD 135, when eventually they were cast out of the land. What Jesus predicted came true. Just as Jesus warned and predicted, Israel paid a great price for rejecting him. Yet we may ask, well, what about the rest of his prediction? The return of the king. Was Jesus confused? Was he mistaken or was he just lying? This is where we must understand how biblical prophecy works. For you and I are here and say, well, okay, that happened. But in the next verse, he says he's returning. What's going on? Well, you and I need to understand that biblical prophecy doesn't work like you and I like it to be. It's like mountain peaks. You and I see mountains all along, and we see a mountain peak, and we think, oh, well, that's it. But yet, as we get closer and nearer, then we see, oh, wait, there's another mountain peak. There's a whole valley in between. And so prophecy works in that way. is where you may see one prediction and warning come true, but what you didn't see is there's something else behind it as well. There may be a delay, so to speak, as you work through the valley. Prophecy plays out in patterns. Though the prophecy came to fulfillment, it was not restricted to just that particular time, AD 70. 
but it indicates multiple fulfillments. It is called prophetic foreshortening. For those of you who like big words and notes, it's an event that is both near and far. It's happening now, but there's also a fulfillment to come a little bit further. The prophet does not necessarily see the event as separate. They might not see it as separate, but as a unit. Hence why many times that's why we get reading in this way. However, as Revelation unfolds, it becomes clear that it is a fuller or deeper meaning. Let me give you an example. If you want to turn to Zechariah, uh, the last book in the Old Testament, or next to the last book in the Old Testament, I can show you an example of this that, that reflects what we're seeing here as we're reading about Jesus uh, uh, last week. Zechariah chapter 9. And look at verse 9 of Zechariah 9, verse 9. In this passage, we're going to see an example of prophetic foreshortening, something that happens near but yet far. We see one mountaintop. We just don't happen to see the other mountaintop. So in verse 9, Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Remember, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. He says, shout aloud, O daughter of Joseph, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey? The events of verse 9 happen or were fulfilled on the day that you and I call Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But the verse 10, though, still remains. So verse 9 came to be, but as you and I come to verse 10, it seems like it's one unit, but look at verse 10. The warnings, or I'm sorry, I will cut off the chariot. So it says he comes into Jerusalem, and then he says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's speaking of Israel itself, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall bring peace. In other words, he says, I'm going to put an end to the conflict when I ride in on a donkey. His rules shall be from sea to sea and from, river to the, and, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, what you and I see here is that that had, did not happen. Jesus rides in on a donkey, meek, but what do they do? They kill him. And then he spends 40 days on earth, and then he ascends into heaven. This is an example of that prophetic shortening. He has not come to rule in peace and justice as of yet. The warnings and predictions of Jesus are partially fulfilled in Jerusalem's destruction of 70 AD, as we see here in Zechariah's, but we see that it has a greater fulfillment. In other words, though Matt, Luke here is not speaking of it, there is a great tribulation that is going to be coming to the world that is going to be like the destruction of Jerusalem, and it's going to precede Christ's return. The siege and destruction of Jerusalem were horrible but the great tribulation in the future is going to be much worse what Zechariah did not understand and what the disciples did not understand because as you saw in our reading they asked Jesus before he went up to heaven well what are, when are you coming back yet yeah, when are the signs of these times and what do you say it's not for you to know what they did not understand is that there was going to be a delay there's going to be a delay it's like, you know, Sabino telling the girls, hey, we're going to Disneyland. And they're all excited. But what he doesn't tell them, oh, we're going next month. You know, they're all upset and excited at the same time. He's, well, but I told you we were going to go. Yeah, I just didn't tell you exactly when, right? There's, there's, there, there's going to be a delay with that. 
That's what's happening here as you and I see the destruction of Jerusalem. And here we are 2,000 years later. And verse 25, was it? Has not yet come to be. But here's what you and I need to hold on to. And I think I may have this on here. Here's what the key that you and I need to understand. Do I have that on there, Ben? The destruction of Jerusalem? All right, then I'll just tell you to you. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple proves and validates Jesus' promise of his return. So you and I, as you and I look at this, we say, well, what does the destruction of Jerusalem have to do with us? Well, in a lot of ways, not a lot. But it does prove that if Jesus was right here, he's right here. He's correct. We can trust in that promise. You see, the temple's destruction was an end of an age, especially for the Jews. Because all of a sudden, with the appearance, or with the, uh, the, with the appearance of the Messiah, what they should have known is that the, that the kingdom of God must be near. You see, uh, Jewish eschatology, the study of last times, taught that the Messiah, he was going to come. He was going to judge the nations. He was going to cleanse the land. He was going to purge the temple. He was going to gather the elect and set up his internal kingdom. But what they didn't understand is that he was going to do the first first, as he was going to purge all things. That retribution was coming because of their rejection. While retribution awaits those who have rejected him, just as Jesus proclaims in Revelation, where he says, behold, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, beginning, and the end. Jesus says, I will do it. There will be retribution. You and I are upset. These people that get away from killing and murdering, people who just do such awful, awful things. We say, when is justice coming? We say, no one will escape their sin and their wickedness and evil. Retribution is coming. But our hope in Christ's return is a hope that you and I have is that he will reward those who accepted him. Paul encourages us in the book of Timothy that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, teaching us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly lusts and passions. He calls us to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. This is the present age, world suffering, church suffering. We're called to endure in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the confident expectation, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify himself for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. Take your Bibles and turn for the last time to Revelation chapter 19. Jesus promises his disciples that he will return in glory and power. This time he is not going to be riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. He's not going to be meek and powerless, so to speak. He's not going to just accept like a sheep that which is going to happen to him. But in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, we read how Christ is going to come where the whole world sees bodily and visibly. John says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. 
the one setting on it is called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings. Lord of Lords. Of course, we may join the chorus of the skeptics of the world who declare, where is the promise of his coming? It's been 2,000 years. Where is he? Is he on a journey? Maybe he's doing the Elijah thing. You know, Is he on a journey? Is he asleep? Is he preoccupied? For 2,000 years, things are continuing. There's continuing conflict. There's continuing death and famine and persecution. Everything is deteriorating more and more and more. Where is he? The birth pains are becoming more painful and more pronounced. Let him come quickly, as the pregnant wife, mother will say. I'm tired of these birth pains. Let's get this going. Wickedness and evil are growing and consuming everything around us. Yet we must not be fearful or doubtful of his great promises, but encouraged that Christ's return is imminent. It is coming soon. In Mark's gospel, Jesus said, but concerning that day or hour of my return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So he says, be on guard, keep awake. Be looking, be ready, be preparing. That's when we take communion in a couple weeks, that's what we do. We eat of this until he comes. We say Maranatha, which means come quickly, Lord. That's my prayer. It's kind of a prayer I struggle with at times. Because as much as I want him to come quickly, there's times I want him to lay longer. I want to see my grandkids grow up. we got two more grandboys coming. I, I like for the Lord to delay until at least after Christmas so I can see the boys. But yet, on the other hand, this world is so devastating, so destructive. There are times I don't want my grandkids to experience this. I don't want them to be tainted by evil any more than they have to be. And I pray for God to draw them to himself, that he may save them. So there is a great delay. You and I are living in that delay. And these are great words for us to follow, to be on guard, to be awake. So the question is, what is the response? We see a, an event has taken place, a, a one sense of retribution, but retribution is still coming for that final day. So Christ came once, but we know that we have a second advent. He's coming again. So what do we do with all this? Well, what's our response to spiritual deception? to national conflict, to natural disasters, to religious persecution, to family conflict. Well, going back to Luke chapter 21, we're going to end with a verse that we have not ended with. In Luke 21, after Jesus says that he will return, in verse 28, Jesus says this, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, 
because your redemption is drawing near. That was 2,000 years. You and I are to raise our heads, straighten up, because our redemption is near. We do not live as the world lives. We do not conduct ourselves in a way that the world does. Peter warns, for the time is past, suffice to do what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says, but they're going to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He goes on to say, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, Christ's return is now at least 40 minutes quicker, sooner than it was when you stepped in here. Amen? We need to recognize that. So keep our heads up. Do not be discouraged, doubtful, or defeated. Christ is returning. Every moment brings us closer to that wonderful day. Both the Apostle Paul and James encourages us. I believe I may have it on the monitor. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And again, he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord in James. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So here you and I are today. Retribution, reward. I pray that you're here today, that you're receiving the reward. If not, it's retribution. If your life is marked by those things in Peter, drinking parties, passions, drunkenness, orgies, living in sexuality, and lawless idolatry, then retribution awaits you. So be warned. Christ is not a liar. That day is coming. We do not know when. So straighten up. Put your heads up. Recognize it. Repent. Confess of that sin. Share that with others. Warn others, just as you would warn them of a speeding car whose brakes are broken, you'd be honking your horn telling everyone to get out of the way. But there's also reward. Let's share that with those that we love. And let us find hope, even in this season of life that we're living in, where everything seems to be crashing down, is that he is returning to reward those. The writer of Hebrew reminds his readers and us today, just as appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, not to pay the penalty of sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I pray if there's any description today that identifies you, that it would be one who is eagerly awaiting the appearance of Christ. Though this will be a terrifying time for those who rejected Christ's kingdom, it is a hopeful time for those of us who have embraced the kingdom of God. Amen? Next week, Jesus tells his disciples how we're to respond to these warnings and predictions of retribution and reward. So next week, we're going to finish out uh, chapter 21 as we see how you and I are to live in this life 
until that day he returns. With every head bowed and every head closed, the worship team comes up. Randy, join me up here, please, for pastor's prayer. Again, I just want you to take a moment just to pause and consider that's what we share today, the warnings and predictions of Christ, of retribution and reward. Would you pray and ask God, Father, do I trust in you? Have I, have, I, have, I, have I accepted the works of Christ? Will I be receiving retribution or reward? Is my life marked by that of the, 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 the Gentiles or is my life marked by one who is straight up, head raised, ready to be awake and be on guard? And may you respond to the Holy Spirit's work as he convicts you, convinces you of that which you should do. Manny, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.